So welcome to another BTOG podcast episode. My name is Helen McDill and I'm a respiratory uh, registrar training in the Southwest Deanery and I'm also the respiratory trainee on the BTOG uh, steering group committee. So this is part of our regular podcast series entitled BTOG does. So we have informal chats with experts in their fields and tackle some of the important questions we all face in the diagnosis and treatment of thoracic cancers. Before we start, it's important to say that sponsors of VTOG don't have any role whatsoever in the planning, content or delivery of anything discussed today. So I'm delighted to say today's podcast is BTOG does malignant plural disease management. And it's a great pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Nick Maskell. Uh, Professor Maskell is a professor of respiratory medicine at North Bristol NHS Trust and also leads the Bristol Academic Respiratory Unit and has a major interest in plural disease, running the tertiary plural disease service and chairing the regional mesothelioma MDT. He also chaired the existing British uh, Thoracic Society Plural Disease Guidelines and is chairing the forthcoming one uh, in 2022, so this year. He's also an advisor to the Royal College of Physicians and the National Patient Safety uh, Advisory Group on Patient Safety uh, with regards to plural interventions. Uh, he's the West of England Respiratory Lead for the CLRN and the NIHR Board uh, Panel Member for Commissioned Calls. And he also has leading uh, roles with the BTS, ERS and sits on the American Guideline Groups and also Chair of the uh, Trustees for Mesothelioma UK. Uh, so it's a real uh, pleasure and honour to, to have you uh, today, Professor Maskell. So thank you very much uh, for joining us. No problem at all, Helen. Nice to speak to you. Thank you. Um, so I guess just to kind of start off, um, should we talk a little bit about the prevalence and burden of uh, malignant plural disease and, and diffusions, uh, just to set the scene really? Sure, well, as you know, malignant plural effusions are common. Um, they tend to be affected in one in six cancers at some point in the course of their disease and their incidence is rising. It's been estimated that about three quarters of a million cases um, are diagnosed each year across Europe, including the UK. And when we're kind of seeing patients with uh, malignant pleural disease, um, are there any factors we're looking at initially that could help uh, predict their prognosis uh, when we're, we're seeing these patients at all? Yeah, I think the landscape has changed in the last decade. I think traditionally we were all taught that malignant pleural effusions carried a poor prognosis and that the average survival was three to four months. I think that if we actually look into that in a bit more detail, there's very wide variation um, in prognosis and therefore really patients need to be taken individually. Um, they obviously want to know roughly what their prognosis is. And we do have some validated tools available to help with that, but probably the underlying driver of the effusion what the actual cause is, is probably the most single important factor because um, the diagnosis, uh, sorry, the prognosis of someone with breast cancer um, or ovarian cancer might be completely different to someone that's actually got uh, widespread lung cancer, for instance. 
Um, and I think that really nicely kind of leads on to kind of my, my next question. Like you said, diagnosis uh, is, is so important. Um, if we're or anyone seeing a, a patient with a, with a kind of suspected uh, malignant pleural effusion, um, could you talk a bit about kind of the workup that we would do, whether it's in a pleural clinic or a respiratory uh, clinic of these patients? How should we approach uh, kind of the diagnosis? Yes, thank you. So, I mean, I, I think patients often get referred to us as a two-week wait. That would perhaps be a, a common way of, of starting their diagnostic pathway. And a lot of hospitals around the country now do have ambulatory pleural clinics to try and keep patients out of hospital while rapid investigations are being carried out. So the first step is often to see that patient and take a detailed history. And you often will have imaging available when you see them for the first time. That will definitely be a plain chest X-ray, but might well have been a staging CT scan where we'd actually want to scan the chest, abdomen and pelvis because of working out where that underlying effusion has come from and whether there's any pathology elsewhere in the body. In terms of the first step, other than taking a detailed history, we will increasingly want to use evidence that we gain on thoracic ultrasound. So this is an easy diagnostic tool and can help us really direct the patient down the appropriate pathway. So if we are suspecting malignancy, perhaps because of their presenting features, um, a dull ache in their, in their chest, um, a history of asbestos exposure, a smoking history, weight loss, night sweats, etc. Then using thoracic ultrasound, we can see whether there's any pleural nodularity that would perhaps point us down a malignant pathway, whether the effusion is highly loculated or not, or whether there are any other markers that might help us. And that first diagnostic um, step after the ultrasound will often be to sample fluid if it is safe to do so. So in order to streamline patients through asking them when we're booking them in for an appointment to come and see us whether they're on any anticoagulation so that can be stopped in a timely fashion does often save the patient an extra trip to hospital and a delay. So after we have got the information we can from the thoracic ultrasound we basically will then take either a diagnostic tap if it's a small effusion or a diagnostic and therapeutic one to send it off for basic tests. Those tests would include excluding um, or trying to exclude infection by sending some to microbiology. We would like to know some biochemical perimeters that might help guide us to make sure that we don't think it's heart failure, liver failure or renal failure that's driving the effusion. And we will always send a sample for uh, to cytology so that we can get some cytological evidence. And then they will often go um, home perhaps having a scan on their way out of the hospital if it hasn't already been performed to come back for the results of those tests. Um, and sometimes we have all that we need on cytological evidence alone. Other times we may well need to pursue a pleural biopsy. And in terms of cytology, kind of roughly from the evidence out there, how often uh, do we get an answer on cytology? Uh, and is that dependent on various different types of cancer uh, that we see, see at all? Yeah, so we've got some good evidence from a paper by David Arnold that was published in the uh, European Respiratory Journal, 
recently that looked at 750 different uh, cases of malignancy and what the cytology yield was depending on what the underlying cancer was. And if we have cancer that is driven either by breast or ovarian primary um, or even lung cancer, then the yield from cytology is high and can be between 70 and 90%. And sometimes you get a very cellular sample um, and all of the added tests, the genetic marker tests that we might want to add in can be done on that fluid and that may well be enough. But often we're dealing with cancers such as mesothelioma, where actually the yield from cytology is very poor, no more than perhaps 5%. And often we will then need to get some tissue in those cases. So thinking about the, those patients, um, what would be our, our next step uh, to getting kind of further tissue or histology from them if the cytology is not non-diagnostic? Well, again, this is a very patient-centered approach. So it depends obviously on the performance status of the patient. Um, and what we think they are fit enough for. In some cases, cytology may be as far as we feel we can go. In other cases, um, a radiological guided true cut biopsy would be appropriate. And for some patients, a thoracoscopy um, and taking a pleural sample that way would be appropriate. That's particularly useful if there is a fluid management step that needs to be done in parallel because all of their fluid can be drained in one go and if necessary we can either spray a talc poudrage or place an indwelling pleural catheter at the end of that procedure so that would be a one-stop shop but often we will take guidance by what the CT looks at to help guide our decision so if we were thinking about a true cut biopsy we need some evidence of pleural thickening that would be amenable to that approach. And I guess ultrasound can help in that instance sometimes uh, as well uh, in, in the pleural clinic if we're seeing pleural thickening and, and perhaps they're not fit enough for, for a thoracoscopy kind of going down that pleural biopsy route, if we can see it might be an option as well. Yes, yeah, so I think that there are two important things perhaps to emphasise there. One is that as um, skills improve, um, often chest physicians feel that they can perform a true cut biopsy at the same time as they are taking cytology in that first stop because it's not very much more invasive than just taking fluid on its own. And if they're seeing nodularity and they suspect malignancy, that may be a good way of getting a diagnosis quickly for that individual patient. So that is certainly being done more commonly than it was a few years ago. Um, the other thing to say is if there is a history of asbestos-related disease and we really think the yield is going to be very low from cytology, we may opt to go straight to a local anaesthetic thoracoscopy and get a tissue diagnosis if the patient's fit enough uh, rather than wait for that cytology to come back. And I guess just for any non kind of chest physicians listening in, just to explain a little bit more about a, a local uh, um, anaesthetic thor thoracoscopy, um, would you be able to, to do that? Just kind of explain um, what we do to our patients. Yeah, sure. So, so basically, this will often be done if we're not spraying talc as a day case now. And it would involve the patient coming in first thing in the morning, if it was a morning list, having fasted. And we would do an ultrasound on the table. We tend to do it in day theatre 
um, from a cleanliness point of view, from a sterility point of view, and they would lie on their side with the effusion uppermost, and we would mark a spot where we can see under ultrasound guidance that there is the pleural effusion directly beneath. And we will make a very small incision, no more than perhaps one and a half centimetres. And we will just blunt dissect down over the top of the rib so that we get into the pleural space. That will allow us just to introduce a trocar, which we can then basically put a very small chest drain that's connected to thoracic wall suction. And that will actually allow us to remove litres of fluid if need be, um, because we're allowing air to come back in at the same time, so we don't have to stop after a litre and a half. And then when the fluid's been removed, we can put a camera in, which can be a rigid or a flexible camera, um, to look around the pleural space. And we will often take biopsies um, from the parietal pleura. We often take six or ten, um, particularly over areas where we are suspicious that there might be nodularity. Even if we don't see any obvious evidence of malignancy, we will always try and take some biopsies to send for histology and microbiology. Um, we tend to make sure that we always send a sample for TB because sometimes uh, even if we're not suspecting it, it can turn out to be a case of TB. Um, and then we will finish the procedure by putting a drain in which will allow the lung to come back up. If we think there's definite evidence of malignancy, we may spray four grams of talc as a poudrage, um, and that might well affect uh, a successful pleuridesis. Data shows that really that will be successful about 80% of the time if we think there's good lung re-expansion. If we don't and we think the underlying lung is trapped, then we might well finish by putting an indwelling pleural catheter in. So most of our patients will go home the same day and then come back for the results a week later. Great. Um, and I guess moving on nicely from that, um, once we've made the diagnosis of, of malignancy, um, we know the effusion often comes back in these patients. How would we go on to manage these patients? What does kind of the evidence tell us? I know you touched a little bit about on some managements after a thoracoscopy, but if perhaps they hadn't had a thoracoscopy or um, they, they've not had a definitive treatment yet. Sure. So... I think the first thing to say, just setting the scene, is that this is very individualised approach because the rate of a pleural effusion coming back is very variable and how well a patient will tolerate a pleural effusion and how symptomatic they are with their effusion again is very variable. We know that they will tolerate onward oncological management much better if we have controlled that effusion. And people's performance status can go up significantly if their effusion is properly controlled versus, you know, not controlled at all. So often we will start by doing a therapeutic aspiration and just seeing whether the patient has actually symptomatically benefited from having that. Has their breathlessness improved? And if it hasn't, then we must think about other things such as lymphangitis or pulmonary emboli. It also will allow us in that setting to make sure that the lung actually is re-expanding and isn't becoming trapped. So often someone in clinic where perhaps the cytology has been positive might have a therapeutic aspiration and then a review. And we don't know how quickly that effusion is coming back, but we would use that opportunity to give them a leaflet about what their options would be if and when they did need something more definitively done. And really it is patient choice because there's been a lot of randomized control studies 
that have actually shown that actually one technique is not vastly superior to another technique and that there are benefits and drawbacks to each of the particular procedures that we are going to offer the patient. So we tend to almost put them on the table and allow the patient to decide which one they would prefer because of their individual circumstances. And I know there's um, a great tool out there now, isn't there? My Plural Effusion uh, Journey, developed by uh, Matt Everson and Rahul Batnagar, which um, yes. I think is a really patient-centred tool to help uh, talk through these options with patients, which is great. Absolutely. I think it's led to the patients having a much better understanding of what their condition is and what their options are. So I, I totally agree. It's a very valuable tool. And what would be kind of the main options we're giving patients who re respond to us taking fluid off so they get symptomatic benefit? And if we say they've got expandable lung, we know their lung expands. What would be the main kind of options uh, to definitively try and manage their effusion we could offer them? I think that basically if they have got a recurrent symptomatic effusion, then we don't want to carry on doing repeated aspirations because we will just be dragging them back to hospital lots and you know using lots of needles to withdraw the fluid and so unless the prognosis is really very poor then most patients that have got a survival that is more than four or six weeks would opt for having something done a little bit more definitively and so perhaps the simplest and least invasive option would be to insert an indwelling pleural catheter, which is a tunneled catheter that sits under the skin and then is basically normally dressed with a bandage so that when the patient was dressed, they didn't know that they had, that no one would know that they actually had this catheter coming out of the side of their chest wall. And the district nurses would come in at home and they would basically connect a suction bottle to the one-way valve and they would drain the patient in the community. Um, and they could do that every day if need be, if they were producing one or two litres a day, as in some end-stage lymphomas, um, or um, once a week, once every other week, if actually they're not producing that much fluid. So we would always tailor the regime of the indwelling pleural catheter to the individual patients and what we were trying to achieve. That indwelling pleural catheter just gets put in as a day case. They would just come in for a morning and have that placed. So that would be a, a simple option. Um, an option that wouldn't involve them having a catheter hanging out the side of their body might be to come in and have a conventional chest drain. And then if the lung has re-expanded on an X-ray, we would install some talc slurry down to try and affect a pleuridesis. The downside of that is that they probably would need admission for about four days or five days. Uh, the upside is that if it is successful, um, that they wouldn't need to have anything um, long-term in terms of sort of IPC drainages in the community. The success rates really of, of that sort of procedure is around 70 to 80% at three months. Great. There are other techniques. Um, we've already talked about thoracoscopy. So um, the, there was a good study from uh, Raoul Batnagar uh, called the TAP study that, that compared um, talc poudrage with talc slurry and found that the success rates at three months were really very comparable. So there isn't any point in sending someone for a thoracoscopy, which is slightly more invasive, just to affect a talc pleuridesis over a talc slurry alone, um, because the data looked very, very similar between those 
two groups. And that does help us because if we're doing a thoracoscopy and with the patient is a little bit unstable after the biopsies, we might decide just to put a drain in, send them up to the ward. And when we know that the lungs re-expanded, they could have talc delivered later that day on the ward. And we know that their success rate of pleurodesis won't be hampered by that. And I guess just thinking about talc, is there a role for it, putting it down an IPC at, at all? I know there's been a, a few studies um, uh, out there. Does that improve the kind of the pleurodesis if we put talc down an IPC at all? Yeah, so I think patients generally really like the fact that they can have their drainages done in the community and that they can have an indwelling pleural catheter placed and not need to stay in hospital overnight. But if you're waiting around for the district nurse to come to drain your fluid three times a week, it can have an impact on your quality of life. So most patients would like a situation where they did self-pleurodese and the catheter could then be removed. And therefore, anything that we can do to try and promote that self-pleurodesis um, is normally appreciated by the patients. So if the lung is re-expanding nicely, then we've got two options to try and get that catheter out quicker. We've got data from a couple of nice randomized control studies that have shown that if we actually drain them regularly, so uh, regular drainage five times a week, seven times a week, that we actually will double the chance of the patient self-pleurodesing and, and removing the catheter um, at two months. Um, and we also know that if we actually put talc down uh, the indwelling pleural catheter at day 10 if the lungs re-expanded that we will double the chance of success from a from a, a, a self-pleurodesis perspective and so if that is the driver then we and the lung has re-expanded we will offer that to patients on a selected basis at, at our institute uh, and they would come in um, on about day 10 and we would drain them put the talc in and then they would still be managed as an outpatient and they would have daily drainages after that with a view to hopefully them pleurodesing uh, within the next week or two. I feel we could keep on talking about this because there's so many uh, kind of options to, to give our, our patients now, but it really does sound like giving our patients the, the options and uh, kind of letting them decide is, is what we should be doing in, in kind of plural clinic when we see them. Yeah, I think one of the really nice things about plural medicine in the last 10 years is that our evidence base was very poor and we've had a whole raft of randomized controlled trials on malignant pleural effusion management. Um, just to name a few, TIME 1, 2 and 3, AMPLE 1 and 2, TAPS, IPC+, SIMPLE. Um, so, so our evidence base is much better. Mm -hmm. And we've also come a long way in what we think is the best endpoint for a lot of these studies. So we used to rely on radiographic endpoints. We're now much more keen on patient-centered outpoint uh, uh, um, um, primary um, endpoints such as quality of life. And so we have got a validated VAS score now, um, which we have used for some of those studies. Great. Um, and our, our 20 minutes is rapidly running out of time. It goes quick. So I guess I was just going to say, have you got any kind of key take home points um, for the management of malignant plural uh, disease? Um, but whether that just came through in your last uh, kind of point that it really should be patient focused uh, in what we're offering our patients. Yes, I think there's so much more that we could chat about on this 
topic, but I think that the probably the salient points are individualized patient-centered treatment. One size doesn't fit all, lots of options. Um, but actually managing the fluid is important for their onward oncological treatment. And so I wouldn't advocate not giving them definitive management and seeing if the chemotherapy works unless we're dealing with lymphoma. And I think lymphoma often can be managed with two or three therapeutic aspirations and they normally will respond and then dry up. But other than that one exception, I think we should be managing the effusion definitively to give them the best chance of coping with onward oncological treatment. Great. Thank you so much, um, Professor Maskell. That's been a, such a fantastic overview. And like you said, I, I feel we could keep on chatting for another 20 more minutes, but uh, I'm going to tie things up there. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I hope you, that's given you a bit of an insight into the management of malignant pleural effusions. Uh, for more information on BTOG, including educational events and kind of more, ca uh, more information on uh, uh, malignant pleural disease and more importantly how to join BTOG you can visit www.btog.org. Uh, thank you very much again for listening.